Today's message has to do with two very important subjects, doctrine and devotion. Doctrine and devotion. Nevertheless, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, nevertheless, we're going to look at both of these very important subjects, but in a way that you might not normally think about. And we're going to do so by looking at the overall context of 2 Thessalonians 2 and the theme of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, when I talk about doctrine and devotion, and when I say nevertheless, what I mean by that is this, we don't always put those two things together, do we? Doctrine and devotion. There are times, very frankly, when we talk about doctrine and someone automatically has conjured up in their minds the idea of this dry, dusty subject that's about to come out of the preacher's mouth. Or if we think about the concept of devotion, we're excited and exhilarated because we think there's maybe singing about to happen, or maybe there's going to be uh, some kind of very active and very, very glorious idea that is going to be shared, but not doctrine. Because doctrine, in the minds of so many, is boring, or academic, or mundane, or too incomprehensible, and a hundred other things. And when they think of devotion, they might say to themselves, devotion, oh, that's praise, that's worship, that's exhilaration, uh, that's smiling, that's joy. But don't add it to doctrine. And I beg to differ. Doctrine and devotion should always go together. Though, sometimes Christians seem to struggle on how to relate each of those things to each other. And of course, if you've been a part of our church for any length of time, you know that we strive to say that doctrine and devotion are married. They're together. You can't have one without the other. You could say it like this, all doctrine is devotional, and all devotion must be filled with doctrine. Now, maybe I should even define the word doctrine because it has such a bad reputation. Doctrine, believe it or not, in our Bibles, and if we had time, I could prove it to you by going to the passages, is simply a synonym for the word teaching. Teaching. Doctrine is teaching. Teaching is doctrine. Doctrine gets a bad rap. And sometimes devotion is vacuous of doctrine. And I want you and me to go through a passage that is as difficult in 2 Thessalonians as any other Pauline portion of all 13 of his letters. It is a landmine. It's very hard. Any exegete, any preacher who is attempting to understand 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 or excuse me chapter 2 verses 1 to 17 is about to be baptized in difficulty challenge what does it mean how does it relate to the overall schema of eschatology eschatology being the big word that theologians use to talk about end times. Everybody's fascinated with end times. What's going to happen? What's the future? How does all the schema fit together? Well, you have to see 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in that light, and you have to see the whole, chap- the whole chapter in that light, all the 17 verses, 
And we can't do that in just one message. And in fact, I'll really only introduce it. And then we're going to take a couple of more parts to actually figure it out exegetically, theologically, doctrinally, but in the context of pure and simple devotion to Christ. I think we can do that. And as I've thought long and hard about it, I see two things at least in the whole of this text, if not in the first three verses of chapter 2. And that's really what we're going to cover this morning, the first three verses, under two outline points. If you have your Lord's Day bulletin, you'll see on the back of it in the note section those two things, Paul's pleading mind, that's doctrine, and Paul's pastoral heart, that's devotion. So if you long forget the outline point, Paul's pleading mind, just think doctrine. If you long forget Paul's pastoral heart, just think of devotion. Doctrine and devotion. And what is it? What do I mean by? What is the understanding of Paul's pleading mind, his mind of doctrine in 2 Thessalonians? Here it is. Chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and the first part of 3. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you, verse 3, in any way. Now that's Paul's pleading. I mean, at the heart of this is Paul the pastor, not just Paul the writer under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not just uh, an apostle, but Paul the pastor who sees and has heard about something that is quite amiss in the congregation. They're very concerned. In fact, the words that Paul uses here to echo what he's been hearing probably from Timothy about the Thessalonian church is this, quickly shaken in mind, verse 2. Alarmed, verse 2. And verse 3, maybe even far more worse than that, deception. I mean, just let those words roll around in your mind. Quickly shaken. You mean potentially shaken from the faith? Alarmed? Alarmed that we have potentially missed the day of the Lord? That's tantamount to saying... I am so alarmed, I am so quickly shaken that there is a possibility that I missed the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now that would set anybody in abject fright, especially those who are looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ, who are looking forward to it with great blessing and anticipation and to believe that somehow we have been told in some way, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to suggest for us that the day of the Lord has already come, the second coming of Jesus Christ has already arrived. And yet Paul says, If you believe that, you've been deceived. So it's not just your own emotions. It's not just your own sense of being quickly shaken, shaken out of your mind, alarmed, alarmed to the hilt. But also, you've become the product of deception. Now that concerns Paul like nothing you would believe because he's a pastor. 
shepherd. And so he pleads for their minds as much as he attempts to shepherd their hearts. And that's why doctrine and devotion go together. Now, for those of you who've been with us, and particularly for the last two messages from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you know that we've been studying the subject of our Lord Jesus Christ's return to the earth. That's a subject, of course, of vital importance. And do you remember verses 5 through 12 of chapter 1? I won't take the time to read it now, but it's talking about when Jesus comes in the form of judgment, judgment against unbelievers, but also for the monumental opportunity for the believers of all the ages to see Jesus Christ coming back to the earth to win and where the resurrected of the dead shall be rejoined with their spirits, their souls, to serve the living God. And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this will be a return, the return of Christ, in which the King of kings and the Lord of lords will both judge all unbelievers who have resisted him as well as to reward all those believers who have suffered for his sake. Both, both are clearly talked about in chapter 1. And of course, multiplied millions throughout the ages have repeatedly asked this question, and usually, no fault of their own, no offense to them particularly, But instead of the fact of it, they say something more like this, when? When is this going to happen? I mean, I can't tell you the number of decades as a pastor. People will always and forever say when you're talking about eschatology and and when, when when is all of this going to happen? And what happens? What happens first and then second and third? And, and, and what do you do and what do I do and what do they do and what does he do? I mean, I'm just fascinated with this. Well, do you know that that's something that's been true ever since the first century? Yes. In fact, in the book of Acts, you don't have to turn there, but Acts 1.6, even Jesus himself was asked by his disciples this question. So when they had come together, Acts 1.6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were asking, when? And he had just been resurrected. And he hadn't yet been ascended. Maybe they thought, this is our last shot. We've got to ask him. You know, they probably pushed some of the disciples to the front of the line, right? You, 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 you ask him. You, you ask him. And indeed, even when Jesus in his earthly teaching ministry, which of course included this, but even earlier than that, in Mark's gospel, say for instance Mark 13, records this, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when all of these things are about to be accomplished? We are as a people, as a Christian people, as a believing people, wanting to know the signs, the seasons, the steps, the times, the future. Just a part of us. And that's okay. And in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and 25, so-called Olivet Discourse, Jesus actually gave a few hints, tantalizing us for more. Here's what he said in answer to their question. He says in verses 5 and 6 of Mark 13, by warning them with this, see that no one, and then remember what I just read from Paul's pen in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the shaken and the alarmed, the, the deception, this is what Jesus said, and this is why Paul is saying to the Thessalonians what he's saying to them, what he's writing to them, Jesus said, see that no one leads you astray. Why? Because there will be boatloads of false teachers and false prophets who will do that very thing or want to lead you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, Jesus says, saying, I am he, 
and they will lead many astray. No wonder Paul's talking about deception in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2, of course. In fact, Jesus even states further in that same discourse in Mark 13 in verses 21, 2, and 3. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. What an astounding statement. If possible, even the elect would be led astray. No wonder Jesus says, but be on guard. I've told you these things beforehand. And this is precisely what Paul's doing here. Look, I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be quickly shaken in your mind. I don't want you to be deceived. I want you, even from a negative vantage point, I want you to be duly warned, duly instructed, that you're duly being guarded by the true truth, the real truth, not the fake truth, not the false prophets, but the true prophets. Not from some spurious letter as though it was written by me, but from my real letter. We're going to see that in a moment. That's why verses 1, 2, and 3 are pastoral at its heart. Pastoral. Concerned about them. See, I think what happens when people are exposed to doctrine, that word, theology, they tend to think that it is automatically devoid of devotion. But what Paul is showing us here very clearly is that doctrine and devotion are inextricably linked. A pastor is trying to see his people come to a place of having pure and undistracted and undiluted and truthful doctrinal devotion to Jesus Christ. What a gift. What a gift from the pen of Paul. I would imagine they would be reading these things over and over and over again. It seems very evident to me that in this first and foremost matter of being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed about those who've tried to convince these Thessalonians that the terrible day of the Lord has already come. And Paul, as verse 3 begins, and as I read it to you, warns them very seriously not to fall prey to this horrible deception. I mean, can you imagine what wrong doctrine can do to the devotion of a believer? It can absolutely take them to a place of abject terror, fear, fear that I've missed it. Fear that I was taught the wrong thing in the first place. Fear that I'm being led astray by this man, Paul. Maybe somebody else is telling me the true stuff, and Paul is actually the deceptive one. I mean, that's, that's what happens. That's, what, that's what's going on here. That's why Paul is so pastoral and doctrinal, so concerned about this, Notice what he says in verse 5. You see it there in verse 5 of chapter 2? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He'd already talked to them. He'd already taught them. He'd already given them doctrine about the day of the Lord. Now, he may not have given them everything about it, but he gave them enough about it that he's actually tantamount saying, you cannot, you should not, you must not be quickly shaken or alarmed or deceived in any way because don't you remember when I was physically with you, when I was not using my pen but my voice and I told you about these things? So you've already heard it from me, and now I'm writing back to you, and I'm seeking to remind you of these things. In fact, so much, my friends, that as he reminds them through his pen, not just his voice, he reminds them 
so that they would not only not be quickly shaken, not be alarmed, and not be deceived, but that they be comforted. That's devotion. You say, how do you know that? Well, it's very easy. Look at verses 13 to 17 of this chapter. This is one unit, my friends. It's not just verses 1 to 12. The whole chapter is one unit, and you must read it as one unit. If you have a Bible like I have, and I'm looking at it, and I see a heading that says, stand firm. Do you have that heading in your Bible? Okay. And you see that there's a little bit of space in between. That's okay as far as it goes. But sometimes we are led a little left than being in the center because those little headings can make us think that one thought has left and another thought is beginning. Not so. Verse 13 is right on the heels of verse 12. There's no break. And he says this, I told you all this truth. I've told you those who've refused to love the truth so as to be saved, verse 10. I'm telling you, even God sends a strong delusion in the day of the Lord so that people might believe what is false. That's a power-packed verse, isn't it? Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned, and this is why those things take place as they do, who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But, notice the contrast, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. He, he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In other words, as over against those who are going to believe what is false and that because they do not want to believe in the truth, but they want to continue to have pleasure in unrighteousness, he says, now I'm talking to those of you who are saved, who are saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I'm not talking about them right now. I'm talking about you. I've just talked about them. Now I want to talk to you. And here's what I want to say to you. Verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't believe that the day of the Lord has already come. If it comes and you're here, and of course for all of those Thessalonians, it did not come and they died. But he's already covered that in the first epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 4. And if you die, and if there's anybody concerned about those who have died before the coming of the Lord, don't worry, they're going to rise first. Don't worry about them. And so that means, of course, that all the Thessalonians will rise. Now, some of you, maybe even me, may be here, and still alive during the coming, the second coming of the Lord. And we'll be translated. Those who have died, who have gone before us, will be resurrected. So whether we're talking about translation or resurrection, everything's going to be just fine. It's going to be just fine. That's why he wants to do this. He wants to give them comforting devotion. Comforting devotion. This is how he does it. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Don't believe that spurious letter. It didn't come from me. In fact, he even says down at the bottom of chapter 3, verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Why does he do that? Is he just sort of uh, pumping himself up and saying, look, I'm Pastor Paul. I'm something special. This is This is my letter, and I put my hand stamp on it. I put my signature on it, Paul. No, he doesn't do it for any of those reasons, far from it. What he's actually meaning there in verse 17 at the end of this letter is, this is a letter by the Holy Spirit through my pen that has self-authenticity. Why? We know that because 
Chapter 2, verse 1 says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Seeming to be from us. You know what he's saying? It's not from us. And when I wrote my, my name, Paul, the lowly Paul, the humble Paul, the apostle Paul, the servant slave Paul, I write this greeting with my own hand because this is the sign of genuineness, authenticity, authority, apostolic authority in every letter of mine. It's the way I write so that you can know that it actually came from Paul himself because they needed that. I mean, can you imagine? Maybe you could say, well, I could imagine that if a guest preacher came into this pulpit and Lance introduced him and he began to preach, and perhaps either in the moment or when he left, the uncertain sound has been sounded, and you might say, or I might say, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not right. You say, well, that wouldn't happen because, number one, you wouldn't invite him in the first place, and number two, even if you did and you didn't know what he was going to say and he said what he said and it was wrong, you'd correct him whether he was in the pulpit or out of the pulpit, and you'd be right about that. But let's say that some other form of communication were to come. Let's say that there was a letter. And in our day, emails abound. Social media abounds. So that just about anybody can say just about anything they want, and often with utter impunity. Who's their pastor? Who who are their elders? Who's who's holding them accountable? Who's telling them, that's not right. You can't do that. You can't say that. That's wrong. That's heresy. That's false. There are even internet churches, which is a contradiction in terms. No such thing as a church on the internet. How How could you love one another and kiss one another in the Pauline command sense on the internet. That's why we ought to be together, physically so. And when we're physically together, if someone picked up a letter or read from a text and said, this is the Lord, and they said something about the day of the Lord that contradicted what Paul had already taught them verbally and is now teaching by way of his writing ministry to correct this spurious letter, then those people have had a pastoral heart and a pleading mind with both doctrine and devotion. That's why this is so very important. That's why you come. That's why I prepare. That's why we talk about these things. That's why we must talk about doctrine. Do you know how how shakable in mind you and I be you and I would be if we actually believed we'd missed the end times reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ where's our hope where's our future what about our lives and what about our loved ones no wonder the Thessalonians were concerned can you imagine and and by the way in chapter 2 Verse 2, when it says, quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, and then notice those three things there, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. What kind of spoken word? Well, perhaps from one of these traveling evangelists, traveling preachers, traveling teachers. Well, what about A spirit. What does that mean, a spirit? A prophet. A prophetic word. You remember I told you that 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were written, some of the earliest letters written by Paul in the New Testament, probably somewhere around 80, 49, 80, 50, 80, 51, maybe 2nd Thessalonians, 80, 52, 53-ish, somewhere around there, Possibly some of the earliest may be only eclipsed by the book of Galatians in terms of earliest letters of Paul. Now, can you imagine? I mean, you and I have this this complete canon here, Old and New Testaments. 
But if you only had a few pieces, only a letter, maybe only 1 Thessalonians, maybe only 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and maybe someone said, I think there's a letter that was also sent by Paul to the Galatians, but I'm not sure. And since they're pretty far from us, we, we don't know. And perhaps maybe that letter could also circulate to us, and perhaps our letters might be able to circulate to them and other beleaguered Christians who are being persecuted and who are suffering. But, and maybe some of our Jewish brethren who've been converted to Jesus Christ might share with us and teach us, like Paul's doing, about all of these precious Old Testament truths but I don't have a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures with me, so I don't know. I'm a pagan. I was. I'm a Gentile. I was. Now I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I need someone like Paul. I need someone like a gifted teacher. I need someone like a prophet, and the prophets in those early days before the canon was completely closed, complete, where there was no prophetic word necessary anymore, maybe one of those false prophets came into town. And maybe they started saying things like this, the day of the Lord has come. Now you know how shaken in mind you could be? How alarmed you could be? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, I remember when Paul was here, he taught that there were things that preceded the day of the Lord. And those things haven't happened. I'm confused. I'm alarmed. I'm shaken. And Paul would add, and deceived. Don't be deceived. Don't be shaken. Didn't I, didn't I tell you, verse 5? Didn't I warn you? Didn't I teach you before about these things? And then, of course, what he does in the bulk of this chapter is to give them more word. I, I tell you, the day of the Lord won't come until the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And Paul, in, in effect, is saying, and that hasn't happened yet. I told you this. Don't, don't be deceived. Some, some guy's coming into town with this, this prophetic mantle, this this robe and, and this cane, and, and he's walking around and he's telling everybody, I am a prophet of the Lord, and I tell you, the day of the Lord has come. And Paul says, it ain't so. Because there are things that must happen first. And I've told you before, and I'm telling you again, and now it's a part of my writing ministry, and now with the genuineness of my signature, you can know that this is authentically Pauline. That, that spirit, that false prophet's spirit is there to deceive you. And that spoken word, that preacher who comes into town, it's not true. It's a false teacher. He probably wants your bodies and your money. And if they can't get you by speaking a false prophetic word, and if they can't get you by saying a false teacher's word, they'll try to, they'll try to make a counterfeit letter and say, this is from Paul. I mean, they're not going to stop at anything. You and I see the same stuff. YouTube, videos, you hear all this stuff that they're saying and they're teaching. And I know what you and I do. I do the same thing. We, we look aghast at this and we say, well, that's not true. That's false. That's a false teacher. That's a false letter. That's a false idea. But what if it's more sophisticated? What if it's more clever? What if it's more insidious? What if it's, in a high-powered way, more deceptive than anything you and I may have ever heard? Are we susceptible? Could be. Possible. So what does he do? He gives you the doctrine. He opposes himself, this son of destruction, and he calls himself God, and he actually goes into the temple because he thinks he's God or he wants you to believe he's God. And then there's a, 
a restrainer or something that is restraining, whether it's an it or a person, and then there's this mystery of lawlessness, according to verse 7, and then this restrainer who's restraining until the restrainer is out of the way or the restraint, whatever it is, and then the lawless one, he's going to be revealed because the restrainer is gone, and then the Lord Jesus will kill this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, with the breath of his mouth, and he'll do so by the appearance of his coming. And, oh, by the way, Paul says, verse 9, all of this, including the coming of the lawless one, is by the activity of Satan himself with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked, what? Deception. And he is powerful. He's not all-powerful, but he's all-deceptive, and his deceit is cunning, And you even saw what happened in the deception of the garden with two perfect people. So any of us could be led astray potentially. And that's not that's why we need to be in this place for corporate worship, Sunday morning, Sunday night, always being the noble Bereans to establish the reading of the scripture and the correct handling of the scripture to see whether these things are so. Acts seventeen eleven. And, and Paul wants them not to be deluded. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He wants them to be delivered from such delusions and deceptions. And when they are, when they're protected by Paul, not a false teacher, by Paul, not a false prophet, by Paul's letter, not a spurious one, No wonder he can say this in verse 15 of this chapter. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions. That's what I verbally told you before, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word, that's what I verbally told you when I was with you, or by our letter. Paul and his apostolic band, both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And then notice the devotion. Verse 16 and verse 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. See, you can't interpret that phrase who gives us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them Without understanding the context, these people are in need of comfort because they are being told false things which remove comfort. See how when you're you're reading your Bible and you're putting stuff together and you're able to, to take such things and say, all right, the end of this section the end of this chapter, chapter 2, when it talks about comfort, ask yourself diagnostic questions. What, what, what does he mean by comfort? What does that mean? See, we're, we're too easy. It's, it's, it's too automatic to say, well, it's just the benediction that ends the chapter. It means, it means nothing in the context particularly. It means everything in its own right. That is, I just want you to be comforted. Somehow generically, somehow on its own, somehow if you're looking at it just atomistically, you're just looking at one verse. But if you, if you widen the context and you see it all the way from verse 1, now all the way through to verse 17, now you're saying, oh, I think I'm on to something with regard to comfort here. Because if comfort is the devotional aspect of what Paul is ending with, I want you to be comforted then maybe that's contrastative of those who are trying to make them alarmed, those who are trying to deceive them. And so Paul is saying, don't listen to them. Don't do it, my friends, because if you do that, your comfort will go out the window. Your hope, good hope through grace. And notice the adjective there eternal comfort. Because he's talking about 
final things. He's talking about the eschaton. He's talking about the end days. And he says, look, if I tell you the truth, and if I tell you don't listen to the false prophets, don't read their false letters, don't believe their, their lies, and I'm telling you the truth, and I told you verbally before, and I'm now writing a letter to you, I'm telling you this. You can have, if you believe the truth, don't buy the lie, don't listen to them, put them away from you, send them out so that you can regrip on this. You and I will have, because of these last days and because of what I'm telling you in this chapter, eternal comfort. Eternal comfort. Hey, I'm into that. I'm into that. I need eternal comfort. I don't want to be shaken. I don't want to be alarmed. I don't want to be deceived. I want eternal comfort. And I want good hope. What kind of hope? Through grace. I want my hearts comforted, and I want them established in every good work and word. And I want the right word. I want the holy word. I want the Bible's words. I don't want a false letter. I don't want to be deceived. Well, and guess what? If you don't want to be deceived, my friends... You've got to sit under the Word. You've got to sit under the verse-by-verse exposition, the sequential verse-by-verse study of the contextual nature of how these passages are laid out so that you and I could have eternal comfort. And it doesn't happen without doctrine. You can't have eternal comfort without good doctrine. And so all the good doctrine is there in chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. That's where all that good doctrine is. And Paul's going to tell you, even in terms of final things, end things, eschatological things, he's going to tell you, this this is the way it's going to be now. It can't be that the day of the Lord has come because some of these other things have to come first. And since those other things haven't come first, then the day of the Lord hasn't come. Don't be deceived about that. You know, I've got to know it. I've got to know the good doctrine because in the good doctrine is sweet devotion. And when you've got sweet devotion, you're going to lock into that doctrine and you will not be shaken, you will not be alarmed, you will not be deceived, and you will be on your way to an eternity of comfort. You won't be falling away. You won't be an apostate. You'll be part of the true. You'll be a part of those who are actually being chosen to believe in the truth, verse 13. And you'll be noted, not in theory, but in truth, in real life, according to verse 14, to show that you've been called through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll know it, you'll believe it, you'll be fortified against it, and that, my friends, is true devotion. You see how doctrine and devotion come together? And you know it's the same way in 1 Thessalonians 4. He does the same thing in those two chapters. And at the end of the section on doctrine about the coming of the Lord and the the righteous dead will be raised first and then we'll be gathered together in the rapture, uh, chapter 4, and then he says, comfort one another with these things. Comfort one another with these things. I can just hear, I can just hear 2021 Christians comfort one another with with eschatology? I, I don't even understand that stuff anyway. And you just, Lance, you just said at the beginning of this message that 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and particularly verses 4 all the way to verse 12, is the most exegetically challenging booby trap of all of Paul's letters. And that's true. And we've got to understand it. And that's going to take us some weeks to get there to understand it. Now you know the method of my madness. I couldn't present all of this to you this morning because I've got to keep studying. I need some more Sundays. I need some more days in between because this is so important. So important to you and me. See, we're not going to play fast and loose with the Scripture. We're not going to trifle with the Scripture. We've got to understand this because in understanding it and applying it and seeking to live it and be fortified by it and being defended from all the false things that are coming down the pike, you and I will have eternal comfort and the good hope of grace so that our hearts would be comforted in such a way that you and I will be established in every good work and word.
And the moment false doctrine comes our way, you and I can pick it out from a mile. And we'll say, that's not true. And we may, have to, we may even have to say, and get out. Get out. I've had to do that before. It's not fun, but it is quite necessary. So that everybody in the fellowship can be protected. And I'm not the only one to do it. It's the elders. It's the pastors. It's the local church. It's even you. It's even you, as you work to come here Sunday morning, Sunday evening, you're in the nine o'clock hour, you're finding out about evangelism, you're finding out about discipleship, you're finding out about counseling, you're finding out about how to fortify yourself against all of those false claims. And when you do, there are times when, praise God, you say to me, you said such and such, and then you said such and such, and that may be contradictory. And maybe sometimes that will be the case. And you've held my feet to the fire, and I say, you know, I said something, but I needed to say it in a different way because I didn't say it clearly, or perhaps I even did contradict myself, and I don't want to do that. Thank you for holding me accountable. I mean, isn't this glorious? You say, not as glorious as five after 12 and I'm hungry. So I shall stop. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, these are monumentally important days. Not as if previous days weren't, and not as though future days are irrelevant to us. They aren't. What is important for us is this, that we find out not only doctrinally, what is the day of the Lord? What is it all about? What's going to come either before it or in it? And when will the Lord Jesus be visible on this earth? And what comes before that? And what comes in that? And what comes after that? And we can get so wrapped up in our eschatological schema, our framework. We can get so enamored of who the son of destruction is, who's the, who's the antichrist, that we lose sight of the fact that, yes, we should know those things, but it's not just to tickle our exegetical and eschatological fancies. It's for our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming again. And when we are devoted to him, we will not be quickly shaken or alarmed or deceived. We will rather be eternally comforted. And how glorious will that devotion be? Give it to us now, even now, our Heavenly Father. And allow the Lord Jesus Christ and the powerful, impacting ministry of the Holy Spirit to guard our every step. If there are those in our midst today, someone who is sitting here or outside or who's watching online, we pray that if you have been impacted by this word, the word of the living God, that you will have been impacted not by the preacher, not by the style, not by the force, but by the truth that there are people who deny such truth and there are people who embrace such truth. And I call upon you to embrace the truth. Embrace the truth that Jesus Christ is alive, that he was resurrected from the dead, and that he now has ascended to the Father and he reigns as our great high priest and he ever lives to make intercession for us, but he's also the one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords who will come in triumphant entry back onto this planet and he will judge the living and the dead and he will judge those who deny the truth and obviate the truth and seek to deceive others to believe the lie. And we want to be fortified against that because we love the truth and we're bound by the truth and we want to speak the truth. And the truth is that if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to be saved. You need to be delivered from your sin. Embrace him now. Get on your knees if you can and 
if you are a person who has never bowed such a knee to Jesus Christ, do so now. Even if you don't do it physically, do it in your heart. Acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your waywardness, your lostness, and say, Jesus Christ, save me from myself. Save me from my sin. And bring to me this salvation that the preacher has talked about. I want not to be judged as those who don't believe the truth. I want to be vindicated and rescued because I do believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want him to be the Lord of my life. I've made a mockery of my life, a mess of it. And I need his truth, his love, his grace to be operative in my life. You say, well, how, how do I do that? Well, you just cry out to him. Well, what do I say? Say, I, I want to repent. I want to turn. I want to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. And I want to turn from my wicked ways. So I ask you, God, give me the grace to do such a turning and give me light and life and salvation and fresh living so that I may have faith and confidence that when I die, I will be ushered into the very presence of the Lord Jesus. And if he comes tomorrow, even today, I want to be found in him. I want his love, not his judgment. Place your faith, place your confidence, place your trust in him and him alone. And he will deliver you from your sin. Lord, thank you for those who are here who have had such deliverance already. And may they, with wonderful eyes of spiritual sight, say, glory, hallelujah, I will be a part of the eschaton. And I thank no one else but you for it. I praise you. I love you. And I ask you, not to allow me to be deceived or shaken or alarmed about anything that distracts me from doctrine and devotion. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.